So this is the third and final week of this short series called The Feast. The first week we looked over at the Passover meal. A lot of people eating a very special meal with incredible meaning, incredible purpose, incredible symbolism. Last week we looked at the Lord's Supper. We considered the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ poured out for us. And we considered Christ's command to do this in remembrance of me or to not not remember me. Today we look at another feast. Today we look at Jesus's miraculous feeding of the 5,000 with a particular focus on Thanksgiving. With a particular focus on Thanksgiving. So with that being said, I'm going to read Matthew 15, 32 through 39. Follow along with me, please. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the word of the Lord. Read it, chew on it, meditate on it, let it change you, let it shape you, let it mold you. And after a few minutes, your discussion leader will begin the discussion. So there at the Lord's Supper, there was thanksgiving. There was thanksgiving. We see two times. We see in verse 17, he gives thanks for the cup. Obviously, the blood is a part of that. The new covenant is a part of that that he's thanking God for. Then in verse 19, it says, When he had given thanks, he broke the bread. So he is thanking God for himself. He is setting a, he's showing what the Passover feast is all about. It's all about him. And he's setting a precedent for his people as we worship for centuries and millennia to come. We do it with thanksgiving. We recognize when we give thanks, whether that be here at the table or for dinner tomorrow night or for breakfast tomorrow morning or whatever it may be, when we give thanks, we realize that what we have is not from us. Even if we bought it with money that we worked and grunted and sweat to earn, that work, that grunt, that sweat is also from Him. So we give thanks knowing 
that what we have, what we've received, is not from us. Christ is the one who gives salvation and atones for sin. We do not atone for our sin on our own. We do not provide redemption for ourselves or for anyone else. No, we give thanks because salvation is all from Him. We are involved, yes, but He is the source. He is the one who initiated it. He is the one who provided it. He is the one that awakens our dead and sinful souls. So He gives thanksgiving at the feast. This was true at the Lord's Supper. This is true today. This word thanksgiving is Eucharisteo. I know Tina and I have read an entire book on Eucharisteo many years ago. Remember, you know what I'm talking about? Yep. And while I wouldn't recognize or recommend some of her more recent work, this lady, she's a farmer's wife in Canada, and she just had a life of incredible brokenness. And she was walking with the Lord and just trying her best to live her life. But um, she ended up making a list of a thousand things that she's thankful for. And it changed her experience with God. It changed her experience from day to day. It was a powerful book. But this word, Eucharisteo, what's it sound like? Unicorns. What else does it sound like? Thank you. Ukraine. Ukraine. What else? Eucharist. Eucharist. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the Roman Catholic Christian tradition, and I believe other traditions, call this the Eucharist. And, hey, that's great. That's biblical. Amen? That's right. But this word, Eucharist, where does it come from? It is several smaller Greek words that are brought together to form one longer word. But the word you, in Greek it means good or well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the word you. So you is good job, well done. Then we have kar or kara or kairo or charis. And these all mean joy and grace. And rejoicing. And I tell you, this feast at this table, when we partake of that which is most nourishing, Christ Himself, like what grace there is at this table. What freeness of provision and of life God has provided. By, his, by this bread and by this cup, by His body and by His blood. What rejoicing should take place. Cairo, meaning rejoicing. So we have you, we have kara, which means joy. We have Cairo, which means rejoice. We have charis, which means grace. And we have this word, this verb, eucharisteo, from which we get the word eucharist. And it means... To give thanks. So Jesus held feasts often, right? Today was the feeding of the 4,000. You may have noticed, but in the previous chapter of Matthew, there was the feeding of the 5,000. So in verses 29 through 31 of chapter 15, Jesus had been healing many. 
he had quite the crowd following him. And the territory he was in was not heavily populated with Jews. These were, many of these were Gentiles. Many of these were people from the nations and they were present. And Jesus was healing and doing many miracles. In verse 31, it says, the crowds were praising God and glorifying God for the miracles He had done. If you read in John chapter 6 and other accounts of this passage, you see that in a crowd of this size, and this is true today, but anytime you have a crowd of this size, there's always some people who are devoted and faithful followers, and then there's some people who are really looking and checking it out, trying to figure it out if it's for them. And then there's others, they're just long for the free ride because somebody there makes good cinnamon rolls. Amen? So, you know, that, that's just what you get in a crowd this size. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that. It does not stop him from being a good and compassionate provider for all who are present. Everyone there gets to experience some of the freeness and the unending, limitless power of Christ. Everyone there got to partake of it to some degree. We see Jesus' concern in verse 32 of our passage. You know, there's thousands of people, most likely 10 to 20,000 people. And I'll tell you why I feel that way in a little bit. But in verse 32, Jesus, not speaking to the crowds, but only to his disciples, he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. This doesn't say that they haven't eaten in three days. I got to be honest, I had kind of always thought that until this week. But most likely, this crowd saw Jesus coming through town and they wanted to go see what everything was all about and they grabbed whatever they could real quick and they went with the crowd. Some of the people in the crowd may have heard that Jesus was over that way, so they packed a couple days' worth of food and they went to see what all the commotion was about. But here we are on the third day. They've got nothing to eat. And Jesus says, I don't want to send them away hungry. They might faint. Jesus is motivated by care and compassion. And He provides for all types of people. In verse 33, the disciples ask a very Good question. And I wonder, like, all right, so Jesus speaks in verse 32. Was he planning to say more than that? And then the disciples spoke up before he could get to say more? Or is this all he said and then he just waited to see what they would do? I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't say. But in verse 33, we know the disciples ask a very good question. Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Consider the circumstances of this feast. They're in a desolate place, right? 
they, you know, I, you know, we heard the pilgrim stories this past week. Yeah. They landed in a place where they couldn't go to Dollar General to buy whatever they needed. They had to construct their own homes and shelter by hand, and they had to grow their own food, all of their own food. Because there was no provision for them by others. I, I couldn't imagine a more desolate place than where they landed at Plymouth in 1620. But here, Jesus and the disciples, they're on the Sea of Galilee. There's tens of thousands of people around. And there's not food for all these folks. Notice also this about their circumstances. There is a great crowd. I want to tell you that Christ is enough in a desolate place. Have you been in desolate places? Christ is always enough. Has God ever given you a crowd to prepare for? Has God ever given you more than what you thought you could possibly handle? If He hasn't done that for you, He will. If He hasn't done that for you, I promise you, He will. And I promise you this also, Christ will be enough when He gives you more than you could possibly handle. What is your desolate place? We've all had that time in our life where our desolate place was our bank account. And our crowd was the next three weeks between now and payday. You know, if it was just three days, you know, we could handle that small crowd. But three weeks, what are we going to do? Even in that, Christ is enough. He won't feel like he's enough. Or let me say it like this. You will not feel like he's enough if you're not walking with him. But if you walk with him, he will be your provision and you will see it in these desolate places. As I consider this question, the disciples asked him, where are we going to get food in a desolate place to feed such a crowd? I wonder what is motivating this question. What are the internal workings of the disciples at this time? Is it a heart of unbelief or is it a heart of faith? Are, are, are they going to Jesus and they're just like, Jesus, ain't no way we're going to do this. You know, is it coming from fear and unbelief? Because sometimes we go to God like that, right? Or is it coming from faith? Are the disciples, in verse 33, asking this question because they know Jesus is about to do something and they want to know how they can be involved? I wonder, which way is it? Are they asking from a heart of unbelief and difficulty? Or are they asking with the eyes of faith because they want to participate in it? The Bible doesn't say, but I wonder. And then, so in response to their question, Jesus does what Jesus usually does, and he answers their question with a question. We see this over and over again in the life of Christ. He says, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven and a few small fish. See, that is their daily bread. That is their daily bread. Jesus taught us to pray. Give us today our daily bread. 
we're Americans. We like to have retirement that's 40 years away figured out. Isn't that right? God makes no promises about that, you all. But what he does teach us is to pray, give me what I need today. And then tomorrow we can pray the same thing. And God can answer it tomorrow. If you're set for life, there's no shame in that. Praise the Lord. That's a great thing. But don't ever feel like he's doing you wrong because you don't have next week's bills paid yet. I do believe there is abundance and blessing and prosperity for the people of God when they walk with God according to the will of God. But here, at this feast, he has their daily bread. This question that Jesus asks in verse 34 changes everything. What do you have? One of our biggest problems as the people of God is we don't realize what God has already provided. Now that can be true in the day-to-day, week-to-week needs of life. But I want to tell you that we have that problem when it comes to this table. Lord, I feel so guilty about what I've done. What am I to do? But Jesus says, what have I already given you? He's given you this. Himself. His body, His blood, at this table, we partake. The death of Jesus Christ that has purchased redemption and covered our sins is ours every day. So you, child of God, you Christian, what do you already have? Same thing you've had since you believed in Christ the first time. You have a dead Savior who rose from the dead. A crucified King, a crucified Lord. What, with all of the knocks and difficulties of life, how many loaves do you have? What kind of Savior have you believed in? Who is already there for you? I tell you it is Christ. Our problem in every area of life is we often don't realize what God has already provided. And I want to tell you, in order to see what God has already provided, sometimes our sinful, entitled hearts have to work really, really hard to look for the little thing that He's given us. And we have to say thank you for that little thing. We have to say thank you for that little thing. So, so Jesus asked how many loaves you have. They said, we've got seven and a few small fish. 
Verse 35 and 36. Jesus directs the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They took what God had already provided, and they gave it back to God. Will you let Jesus be Lord of what you have? This is where everything changes. They were looking at what they had, and how can this possibly feed so many? And Jesus says, give it to me. I got this. Everything changes. They gave to Jesus what he had already given to them. They didn't try to exercise lordship over what God had provided. Y'all, they just followed his instructions. They surrendered all they had been given to Christ. And look at what Christ did with it. Christ is always enough. And if you're ever looking at the crowd that you got to take care of in your desolate place, and you don't feel like you've got what's needed or what it takes, and I'm preaching to myself here, give it to God and watch what He does with it. In verse 35 and 36, we see they let Jesus be in charge. But in verse 36, before he distributed the bread and the fish, he stopped. And he gave thanks. A big part of thanksgiving requires us to stop. Are you willing to stop? To give thanks? We are to give thanks for all that God has given. And in order to do that, we have to pause. At our Thanksgiving dinner at my aunt's house, I don't know how many people were there, probably close to 40. Big crowd. People were bumping into each other, knocking each other down. <laughs> In order for us to collectively give thanks, we, everyone had to stop. All the food was right there. But we took time to say that everything that we were about to feast on came from God, but we had to pause. The Christian life is a, a life of thanksgiving. I read through the Psalms this past week and looked at every occasion where thanks or thanksgiving appeared. And it was 
just incredible how great the theme of thanksgiving must be in our worship. And in order to do that, we have to stop. And after we stop, after we give thanks, then we do what we were about to do before we paused. We see this with food. We see this with the meals that we eat. But I want to tell you, in every single realm of life, if we are going to honor God and glorify God, then thanksgiving is absolutely necessary. When you pull up in the parking lot of that job that you're sick of going to, do you turn the car off and hop out and go in? Or do you turn the car off and pause and give thanks for your wretched boss that you don't want to work for anymore? You should. The moment, and there's all kinds of passages I could pull in to show this, but I'll just sum it up this way. The moment that you pause to give thanks for the things that you're not excited about, Your whole outlook on those things changes. If you don't believe me, try me. If you don't believe me, try me. Giving thanks is an intentional moment when you give glory to whoever you're thanking. And for us in the Christian life, it's God. When we give thanks, we stop focusing on ourselves and our appetites, right? Because... There are times as a Christian that we'd rather be king than Jesus. And there's a time where we'd rather feed our appetite instead of just walking in the Spirit as God would have us, whatever that may be. And I'm not saying that God doesn't tell us to feast and fill our tummy and be satisfied. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that our human appetite can become God and we can push God out. When we give thanks, we, we stop focusing on ourselves and on our appetite. We cease being a mere consumer. And we live in a consumer-driven culture today. What can you give me? What can you do for me? What can I get for me? Me. Me. But when we turn that consumer mentality off, when we flip the switch and cut the power to the entitlement complex that our culture just pushes into us and drives into us over and over again, when we consider the freeness of what has been given and the goodness of God, our attention is on Him and what He wants and not on us and what we want. Are you struggling in your Christian life? Are you displeased? with how things are going for you, then I tell you, thankfulness may very well be a key factor to pull you out of the rut that you're in. We all get in ruts sometimes, right? If you're despising your situation and your lot and your season in life, if you get up every day frustrated... What would happen if you went home today and put five things on a sticky note that you were thankful for? Or what if you started a journal and and every day just tried to write down one or two or three things that you were thankful for? And then after you wrote them down, you said, yes, God, 
Thank you. See, that's the pause, right? That pause might be the best thing you ever implemented into your daily routine. Last night I read uh, George Washington's Thanksgiving address from 1789. That man gave incredible glory to God. He understood where everything came from. And he paused his busy schedule leading what would become the most powerful nation in the world. He paused to publicly glorify and honor God. Look at verse 37 of our story and see the miracle that followed the thanksgiving. And I believe in many ways this is a miracle that will follow your thanksgiving. They all ate and were satisfied. Y'all, I got to tell you, things always taste better when you're thankful. Things always taste better when you're thankful. Everything is more satisfying when you give thanks. Continuing in verse 37. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. They didn't, they questioned whether there was enough. Jesus got his hands on it, and then they had leftovers. That is the power of Christ. In verse 38, we see those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. All right, let's just imagine most of the men were married. All right, so that gets us up to, what, 7,500 people? They all had two kids. And what's that, 7,000 more? That's 14,500. Most likely, it was much more than the population of Gates County. We're sitting roughly 10,500, I think, here in this county. This may have been ten to 20,000 people that Jesus just fed. There was a crowd in a desolate place. Jesus took care of them all. They were satisfied and there were leftovers at this feast. I got an application to all of you who haven't had kids yet. God said, be fruitful and multiply. But if you have more than two babies, they're going to be like, how in the world do you provide to or tend to provide for all of them? (laughs) I'm going to walk with Jesus. You be obedient to the command of God to be fruitful and multiply and do not fear how you're going to take care of them. You walk with your Lord And He will take care of them. He will lead you and He will guide you. People in this world are afraid. They want you, they want all of us to look at our circumstances, to look at the meagerness of everything. And Jesus says, I just fed 15,000 people with some bread and some fish. Far less food than what there was in my aunt's house Thursday night. And he fed them all. 
God will provide. He will take care of you. When people try to get you afraid and scared, consider what Jesus did on this day. So this was a feast. There were far more people at this feast than there was at the feast we looked at last week, right? But the feast we looked at last week now has more participants than this feeding of the 4,000 men. The feast that Jesus led his disciples into hours before he was arrested that Thursday night 2,000 years ago has had far more participants than these that were with Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. I want to tell you, with Christ, there is always enough. His body, His broken body, His body that was whipped and shredded, His skull that was punctured by dozens of sharp, painful, awful thorns. That broken body was enough to purchase our salvation. We can do nothing to add to what Christ has done. Nothing needs to be added to what He has done for us. His sacrifice was perfect and complete. Our salvation isn't 90% Him and 10% us. The body of Christ was enough. The blood of Christ was sufficient to cover the sin of the entire world. Jesus took what they had. Jesus took what He was given. And He fed thousands of people and they were satisfied. But on that cross... Jesus gave Himself and the righteous and just anger of God was poured out upon Him and Jesus was enough to satisfy the just and righteous anger of a holy God. Christ is always enough. I want to ask you, are you satisfied with Christ? Is Christ enough for you? Or do you need some other God or something else to look to? And when I say that, I'm not saying it's wrong for you to desire to be married or to own a home or anything like that at all. 
I'm talking about the biggest, most important matters in all of life. Who do you worship? And who is it that ultimately satisfies you? Is Christ enough? He satisfies everyone who will come to Him to feast on Him at His table. His body and His blood is sufficient to save our souls. If you've been a Christian for 40 years, there's enough to feast on in Christ for you to be amazed the rest of your life. And anyone who's been following Jesus for a really long time will tell you that I never get tired of Jesus. Christ is everything needed for our salvation. He satisfies, and He not only has satisfied you, but He satisfies anybody who will come. There is always more space at this table for those who haven't come yet. Amen? They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 besides women and children. Christ is a sufficient Savior. He is more than enough. He is all that we need. Let's pray.